Well, we have taught that now for many years, that the church is the hope of the world. It is absolutely God's plan A to take the gospel to the nations, and there is no plan B. And so if the church is that important, and our convictions are that deep regarding the church, here's a fair question to ask. How is the church doing? And I don't mean just Liberty Heights Church. Uh, I mean the church of Jesus Christ in the world and in our context here uh, in America. Well, if you look at all of the uh, relevant data, it's pretty grim. Uh, All the single data points show a downward uh, trend in regards to the local church. Uh, If you're looking at cultural markers in society, I think the opinion of most people is that society is not getting better or more moral or certainly more Christ-centered, that it's going in the other direction, we would say in the wrong direction. And so because those stats are true, because what we see around us is not encouraging, there is a temptation to get discouraged about the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry and the impact of the local church in the world. And so uh, we can lose focus on what actually is true when we look around and it doesn't feel to be true. To quote the old preacher Vance Habner, Vance Habner said this. He said, we have an incredible ability to doubt in the dark what God has already revealed in the light. And the place where God has chosen to reveal the light of the world, Jesus Christ, is through the Word of God. The Bible said it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so for just a few minutes this morning, I'm going to offer some reminders that I hope will be encouragements regarding the work and the hope of the local church. And then I just want to share a couple vision things that uh, as all of our campuses are gathered together, here's some vision priorities that our staff uh, have been leading towards in doing that. And so, so a little devotional this morning to remind us and encourage us about the hope of the church, a little vision talk. And so if you leave today and say, I don't think that was much of a sermon, I totally agree. That was the whole point of it, all right? But turn with me for a few moments to Matthew chapter 16 to anchor our thoughts and more importantly, our hope around the work of the church, what we gather together to do. And so I promise to be brief. I remember a missionary years ago, he spent his whole ministry for decades, uh, and he was a missionary who was self-funded. And so what he would do is he would spend half his time going all over the country, speaking at different churches to try and raise support uh, for his ministry so that he could do the work God had called him to do. And he was sharing that with someone, and yes, it's hard to pack your kids up in a car, and yes, it's hard to live on the road all that time. And they said, yeah, but imagine all the wonderful things you've seen and the body of Christ as a whole, and and I bet you've learned so much from seeing all these different expressions of the church in all these parts of the world. And they said, "Uh, what is the one thing from all that travel as a missionary, raising your own support, what is the one thing that you've taken away from that incredible experience? He said, that's a great question. And so he thought for just a moment, he said, you know what, here's what I've learned. Preach short, keep your support. Let's see, that's what I've learned. So that's my heart today. I want to keep my support. So I want to preach just for a few moments out of Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Now, if you're a part of Liberty Heights, this isn't your first Sunday, then one of the things you know about our ministry is we often teach through whole books of the Bible. And one of the benefits of doing that is as you're teaching, uh, you understand the context, the setting, all those things that's been unfolding uh, in that book of the Bible. And so apart from context, here in the middle of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, we don't have a full appreciation for this truth and this promise that Jesus gave to the church uh, when he said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let me help you understand a little context to the crowd he's speaking to. Most of the early converts to Christianity, the gospel, uh, were Jewish converts living in poverty, living under the oppressive rule of Rome. And because they were former Jews, many people they were closest to said, you've turned your back on us. You're no longer following the way that we've been taught all of our lives. You're doing this new thing. We're not totally sure why you're doing that, but you're no longer a part of us. And so their own people uh, often opposed them. Because they were Jewish in heritage, uh, they were non-citizens of Rome. And so what did that mean? It means they had very little opportunity to build wealth or to uh, have political influence uh, in that culture. So so here's a group of people that Jesus makes this promise, this radical promise to this fledgling group of people who has no wealth and has no political influence. And to that group of people, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now contrast that to us today. We've got, uh, Christianity is still the majority religion as those who self-identify in America. And so because of that, uh, we have tremendous political influence to the point of being able to sway elections. We've got tremendous financial resources. Uh, Still to this day, despite all the critics, Christian philanthropy is the number one source of philanthropy in the entire world. Christians give more to charity around the world than double the next highest group of people. So, say what you want about the church, we're blessing some folks, amen? But yet here we see all these stats, and here we see all these things that concern us, and yet this promise Jesus makes says, hey, I know this sounds crazy because this thing's brand new. You've got no money, you've got no power, you've got no influence in culture, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start a worldwide movement, and it will not fail, and I'm going to start it with you. That phrase, the gates of hell shall not prevail, it's been uh, taken uh, several ways. Some people said it's a promise that the church uh, cannot be defeated, and the Bible does speak about that in Matthew chapter uh, 28, verses 18 through 20, that we say every single week uh, at the end of our services in the Great Commission, but here uh, it has a little bit of different sense. When the Bible talks about gates, sometimes it's metaphorical uh, in sense, but sometimes it's literal. It's the entry to a city or a temple or a prison, and therefore, gates are a defensive structure. If you ever drive through a gated neighborhood, the reason gates are out there is not to keep the people in who live there, it's to keep the people out who don't live there, right? So gates are defensive structures. And so what Jesus is saying is this, is that despite the fact that you've got all this oppression going on politically, Despite the fact that you've got no material resources to actually do anything of significance, here's what I want you to understand. That hell's defenses will not thwart the church's progress. The gates of hell, all their defenses against the church and its momentum and the power of the gospel, he said, here's what I'm telling you, that their defense against what we hope to accomplish, it will not stand against the church's progress. The phrase in sports, you ever heard this phrase, in sports, Uh, The best defense is a great offense. And so that's what Jesus is promising. Despite all the grim statistics that we see out there in culture today, 
despite the, all the things we see going on in cultural uh, morality, listen, there is a promise to the church that no matter what stats are reported, no matter what you see that concerns you, that hell's defenses have no chance against the offensive power of the church of Jesus Christ. The church will prevail is what the Bible teaches. We were the 96 Chicago Bulls before they were cool. Amen? And I'm Michael, no, I'm not. And so, church, let me just encourage you, as you're reminded of this promise, as you're reminded of the context of who he said that to and all they were up against, let me just encourage you, as you look around the world and see all the stats on the church and see all the grim morality that you're seeing out, let me just remind you to let the word of God and not your favorite news source disciple you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Because what we see in the Bible for the church, we're not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory. And all throughout, when you study the redemptive narrative of the Bible, all the way back from the covenant people and the nation of Israel and God's redemptive history, all the way through the book of Revelation, what you're going to see is this encouraging truth. God has always, in redemptive history, God has always accomplished his work through a faithful remnant and a minority, not through the cultural majority. So if you feel like we're losing influence in culture, we're becoming a minority quickly, then guess what? We're in the perfect place for Jesus to get all the glory as he builds his church, praise God. And so be encouraged by that. Let's not forget this powerless, pitiful group of followers that he made this promise to in Matthew chapter 16, who, who no one would look at and say, these, these guys are going to, literally just overcome the world and change all of human history. It's the same group of pitiful people that Acts chapter 17, verse 6 says, these are they that turn the world upside down. We don't have to make sure the church is victorious. Jesus already secured the victory. We don't have to grow the church. Jesus has already promised that he will build his church. All we have to do is be faithful to what he's called us to do. So let me challenge us toward faithfulness real quick here and Three areas uh, as a corporate church uh, gathering together today. Three areas of faithfulness that uh, I want to encourage you with that we should lend our efforts and resources to. Number one is as a church, uh, we should keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, Rick Warren has a statement. Uh, he says this. He said, Mary had a little lamb. It would have been a, 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 Mary had a little lamb. It would have been a sheep, but it joined a local church and it died from a lack of sleep. And I can tell you this as a pastor, it's real easy to get real busy to do lots of activities that don't actually move the needle in regards to the gospel. There's a famous gospel track that says this, that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for his life. What I discovered when I became a pastor is this, is that God loves me and everybody else has a wonderful plan for my life. Have you noticed that as well? And so it's easy to experience mission drift get caught up in all these fun things and wonderful things that we're grateful to God to enjoy, but, but if we're not careful, all those things can take us away from the main thing, which is declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him as Lord and Savior. Let me give you some stats. Just one in four Americans, 25% is a practicing Christian, not a, not a self-identifying Christian, but an actual practicing Christian, uh, 25% of Americans. Uh, in essence, the share of practicing Christians has already dropped in half since uh, 2000. Uh, so practicing Christians identify as a Christian. They agree that faith is very important in their lives, and they've attended church within the last month. That, that's a practicing Christian. So let me give you a couple stats. Uh, those who identify as Christians in my grandparents' generation, so some of you your age, uh, 84% identify as a Christian, 84%. 
Uh, in my kids' generation, 49%, so if it's dipped under 50%, have identified as a Christian. Uh, for people who attend services once a month, in my grandparents' generation, 61%. Uh, in my kids' generation, 28%. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you are grieved that what seems to be, that here in America, we're becoming less of a Christian society? Anybody grieved by that when you look around and see all the lack of, like, right? Yeah, I'm grieved. My hand's up. Uh, I'm grieved this morning, all right? So now let me just give you a theory. There's all kinds of reasons. What do you think that is? Because this isn't happening, this is happening, all those kind of things. Let me just give you a theory. The reason there are less Christian values being upheld in American social life is because there are less Christians percentage-wise. That's not rocket science, right? If you've got less percentage of Christians in a culture, then that culture will reflect less uh, Christian values. And so, so the reason we're seeing an erosion of Christian values in culture is because every generation, the percentage of Christians in culture is rapidly declining. And those who don't know Christ are not going to hold to Christian values. That doesn't even make sense. So, so right? So that, that's what's going on. So here's a key question. Also not rocket science, all right? For those of you who are in a diabetic coma from the senior adult breakfast this morning, okay, listen. How do people become Christians? It's not through Christians retreating from culture. It's not through political activism. Uh, people become followers of Jesus when those who know Jesus talk about Jesus to people who don't know Jesus. That's how more people become Christians when those who know Christ talk about Christ, share Christ, witness for Jesus Christ, and as people receive Christ, there'll be a greater percentage of Christians in culture, and the overflow, not the goal, but the overflow, is there'll be more Christian values held up in society. So listen, the challenge is this. The church has to recover the lost art of personal evangelism. People, listen, some of you are a little older than me. Some of you a lot older than me, right? Remember this, when the church talked about having a burden for someone? Remember that? Listen, we have to rediscover the burden. That, listen, we have to live with the deep conviction that this, that there's a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. And those who know Christ have to share Christ with people who don't know Jesus Christ. And if you're content for a cultural morality where people aren't actually coming to true faith in Jesus Christ, then what you're lobbying for and advocating for is the same thing that the Pharisees wanted to accomplish, which was a legislated morality, but people didn't know Jesus Christ. And so here's the challenge I would uh, have, and I'll just move on real quick here. Here's the challenge I'm going to put up to everybody that we're gathered together. I'm going to challenge you. We're going to put a little graphic up on the screen. Uh, hopefully this looks familiar. We've talked about this, we've talked about this, three circles for sharing Christ, uh, how to uh, share Christ with someone else. It's on the back of your worship folder every week. It's in some of our buildings. We've used this, we've taught this. Here's my personal challenge to all of our campuses this morning. I'm going to encourage you to go use that tool to learn about it on the back of your worship guide, all the links there. I'm going to encourage everybody who is a part of Liberty Heights Church to learn how to share Jesus Christ using this little tool because the church has to have a revival of personal evangelism. So the first thing I would challenge us is let's keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is seeing people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Here's the second thing, and I'll be quick because I'm out of time. The second thing is this, is we've got to disciple men intentionally. 
There's a lot of debate, even our national network of churches, about you know, what does it look like, who can lead in the church, all that kind of stuff. There's no debate that God's called men to lead. The question is, what's the role of women? There's a lot of debate about that in all kinds of churches. But nobody's debating that God's calling men to lead spiritually. Now, let me give you a statistic. When you reach a child for Jesus Christ, there's a 17% chance you're going to reach that whole family. When you reach a mom for Jesus Christ, there's a 23% chance you're going to reach that whole family. When you reach a father for Jesus Christ, there's a 92% chance you're going to reach that whole family. Listen, if we can win men to Christ and disciple men in Godliness, we literally can change the world. And so, what does it look like? We're asking those questions. To what we're already doing is helpful, but what it was look like to even ramp up those efforts to reach and disciple men. Here's the third thing, and I'll wrap up. We need to increase our efforts and resources to reach and disciple 16 to 25-year-olds. Now, let me just share a quick praise. Uh, over here, see all these handsome kids over here? A couple weirdos mixed in, but most of them are handsome, amen? That's the largest group of students we've ever sent to camp in the entire time that I've served here. Can we celebrate that? And so we're, we're bucking the trend, because nationally, Gen Z is the least Christian generation in America uh, only 4%, about 49% self-identify as a Christian, but 4% of them say, I hold to a biblical worldview. And I want you to hear this. Self-identifying as a Christian doesn't drive your decisions. Uh, holding to a biblical worldview is what drives your decisions, 4% of that generation. And so we've got to continue to reach and teach and keep uh, uh, those who are in that age group. And so I think we've got to put even more resources towards 16 to 25-year-olds. We've got to do our part to beat the trend which says this, that approximately two-thirds of all young adults in the church in America drop out of church when they graduate from the student ministry. And so here's what we have to do as a church. We cannot be content with that statistic. We've got to put more resources into those ministries and more opportunities and, uh, so we can equip them and help them live with a biblical worldview. Now, when I think about those things, here's what I think of. This is what everybody on staff thinks of. That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds like a lot of sacrifice for you to invest and to be a part of that. Reaching men and students and young adults and winning people to Jesus Christ. And so that's going to require more commitment, not less. Greater sacrifice, not less. But here's the reality. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, and we're reminded of his great sacrifice for us with his body and his blood, here's my thought. Every time we come to the Lord's table, it's the least I can do. The least I can do is he gave his life for me. The least I can do is to give my life to him. And guess what? Liberty Heights Church, in our little corner of the vineyard, I believe this. We can change the world right from Liberty Heights Church. Praise God. Yep, let's we'll celebrate that together. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, the Bible says that when you come to the Lord's table, that a, that a person should examine themselves. And so we're going to give you a moment. I'm going to ask you to enter into a time of examination before we come to the Lord's table. So uh, they're going to come and lead us in a song of reflection and worship. Uh, they're going to come and pass the elements. And if you're gluten-free, grab a elements there in the middle. Those are gluten-free. And so, but before we do that, let's bow our heads this morning. And if you're here and you're not a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, you can just pass those elements on to the next person from you and worship with us. But for everybody in the room, as you come to the Lord's table and remind of his great sacrifice for us, what does it look like for you and your next step? And so some of you, is a time to receive Jesus Christ. 
Some of you, this may be a time to ask the Holy Spirit to search your hearts and confess sin, to pursue reconciliation with others. And for some of you, this may just be a time of gratitude to say, Lord, these elements represent all the things you've given me, your life and your sacrifice on my behalf. Fathers, we come today to gather at the Lord's table. Some of us have done this hundreds, maybe even thousands of times. But Lord, just because we've done it so many times, let us not come to the Lord's table and treat something common because it's familiar. And so Lord, as we receive these elements today and they lead us in a song of reflection, I pray that the gospel would be made fresh in our hearts again today as we remember his great sacrifice on our behalf. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.